So we're continuing in 2 Thessalonians. If you're visiting today um, at Revolve, we tend to work through books. Most of the time we work through books of the Bible. Um, and we do that in large part because we like it, but also because then you don't skip things that are a little uncomfortable or awkward or difficult to explain. Today is kind of one of those passages that's a little bit difficult or awkward, and probably some people would just skip it, but we're not going to skip it. But if you are visiting, um, we're glad you're here because this is, this is really the nuts and bolts of what we need to hear um, as, we, as we think about faith. What happens when we die? Who is Jesus? Why is he important? And it's fitting as we think about baptisms as well. So we're looking at 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12. That's where we're going to be. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12. And the title of the sermon is Recompense and Relief at His Revealing. So I think it's safe to say that we're all in a time of weariness. Matter of fact, I saw in the news this past week that Americans are at an all-time high in terms of feeling weary and just kind of done with all that's going on in the world, with the pandemic, with politics, with this, with that, with everything else in the world. And I think we can all appreciate that, um, that there eventually seems to be a breaking point for people, and maybe we see snippets of it here and there. And so if you're like me, there's maybe there's been weeks and, and months or maybe days, depending on your personality, when you just feel like, when is it all going to end? Like, when is it going to stop? When are we going to get some rest? When are we going to get some relief? When is it not just going to be another thing that ruins my day, that ruins my life, that ruins my whatever. And you can be super dramatic like Anne of Avonlea. And, and, but this is kind of how we feel some of these days, that we feel like we're just desperate for peace and rest and some semblance of normalcy. But there's also another emotion that I think some of us are feeling. We have that emotion of just desiring rest and relief but if we're honest, the flip side of that coin is just this seething fury, like you better not get me on a bad day. Can anybody else relate to that as well? Right? There's this seething fury for those of us who are of, of, this, of this personality where it's like, please don't push me when I'm in a bad day or I'm going to be on TV. It's going to be a viral video. <laughs> because I freaked out on some guy in Wawa, right? I say this in jest, but we're human. See, because when we're in a time of distress, there's two things that we desire. We desire relief from the distress. And if we're honest, though we may not use this word, we desire revenge. Maybe we wouldn't use the word revenge. We desire repayment. We desire recompense. We desire justice. And so when we feel like we're being stepped on and pushed on and knocked down, there's a part of us that says, when will there be relief? And then there's another part of us that says, when is it going to be my turn? When is justice finally going to be due? I think at some point in time in the last year and a half, everybody has felt that. Okay? And if you felt either of those emotions, this sermon is for you. 
You see, these emotions are, are not new to our generation. Actually, they've been common to every generation of humanity and every generation of believers. And maybe in the United States or in your family or as Westerners or just you personally, maybe or maybe not, you've experienced a long season of rest and relief. Or maybe you've had a difficult life through and through, but you have to realize that this is not the norm. Actually, our family of believers all over the world, as well as the family of humanity all over the world, has long suffered under illness, famine, difficulty, and the boot of oppressive regimes. And so as you watch Afghanistan fall into complete and utter disarray, I had three, by the way, three contacts in or who work in Afghanistan in the last 48 hours contact me all the same last two days begging for prayer because Christians are being slaughtered by the thousands. And not just Christians, but the Taliban is killing the Hazara people as they encounter them because it's a Sunni-Shiite discrepancy. This is our world. So let's read 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12. This is evidence, and he's referring to the previous verses. We're going to remind you of that in a moment. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I told you it was light. <laughs> they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 to 12. So just as a little bit of a reminder, Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonians to encourage them to stand firm in faith, to stand firm in hope, and to continue to love in the midst of persecution. And he also writes this to clarify some discrepancies regarding future events. The fancy term for that is eschatology, as well as to rebuke some lousy behavior that had taken root due to bad eschatology. Everything is rooted in what we think we know. Our doctrine leads to bad behavior, not the other way around. 
So in the second half of chapter one, Paul is trying to encourage the church that, yes, I see your affliction, that I'm not powerless towards your affliction. I'm not dismissive towards what you're going through, and I will do something about it. And that's something that everybody in this room needs to cling to today, that God is saying, I see you in your persecution. I see you in your difficulty. I see you in your affliction. I see you in all the nonsense sense going on in your life, and I will do something about it. But that being said, what he's communicating here through Paul is, I'm not going to do something about it yet, because I have a plan, and I have a purpose for the affliction, for the persecution, for the suffering, for the difficulty. I have a plan to use those things today and also in the future. Nonetheless, you should take comfort knowing that God will right every wrong. He will wipe away every tear when Jesus finally returns. That's essentially the summary of what Paul is saying in these seven verses. And so let's look a little more closely. As we look at this passage, you realize he's talking about this phrase, the righteous judgment of God. And what we see in this passage is that the righteous judgment of God accomplishes three things. It has three purposes as revealed in this passage. The first one is this, the righteous judgment of God perfects believers. The righteous judgment of God perfects believers. That's what we started talking about last week. He says, this is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. And so what we saw last week was Paul was talking about how they were growing in faith. In other words, they were growing with this intimacy with God, drawing near to him in his presence. They were growing in love for one another, encouraging and holding the community of saints accountable, living out the one another's. And they're growing in hope in the midst. This is the key part, in the midst of suffering. Because suffering... This is what Paul's arguing is the evidence of God's righteous judgment at work in you. Suffering is part of God's plan to refine his people. Suffering is part of God's plan to refine his people. We talked about this last week, that growing in faith, love, and hope in the midst of difficult times and even good times, is the evidence of God at work in you, and suffering is the means by which God makes us worthy. God makes us worthy through suffering. What does that mean? Just really briefly, because we talked about it last week, what it means is that genuine faith results in life change. I heard one author describe it this way. I think it was R.C. Sproul, but I don't remember if it was R.C. I think it was R.C. Sproul. It was J.K. Beale. Okay, so <laughs> this is what he said. And this is, an, this is just an analogy, and analogies always fall flat, so don't overanalyze it. He said, if you have a ticket to the game, whatever game, pick your sport, okay? You have a ticket to the game. What purchased that ticket was money, and the evidence of the money spent is the ticket. But what really gives you entrance to the game is not the ticket, but the money that was spent. 
And he says, in the same way, it is the blood of Jesus that has purchased people unto access to the kingdom of God. And the change of a person is the evidence, the ticket stub, of the payment that Jesus has given. And so the idea is that we are saved by faith, faith alone, by grace alone, so that no man can boast. But it is not a faith of passivity, but it is an active, alive faith that over the course of one's life results in scalable growth. And the metric of that scalable growth, like we said, is not just some ruler that you hold up because it is a lifetime of growing in faith, love, and hope. More today than I was 10 years ago. But it doesn't mean that we all look the same. The righteous judgment of God at work in us does that work. So that's the first thing it does. That was last week. The second thing the righteous judgment of God does is this. The righteous judgment of God repays the afflictor. The righteous judgment of God perfects the believer. The righteous judgment of God repays the afflictor. This is where we're going to spend the most of our time. This is what God says in verse 6. He says that God is counting you worthy since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. By the way, this is exactly the verbiage or the words, the style of speaking that God used in Exodus to describe afflicting the, uh, afflicting the Egyptians. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he says, and if you break my covenant, I will afflict you with the afflictions of which I afflicted the Egyptians. And so God protects his true people, and he considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Just some facts about the affliction of God's people that you won't read on CNN. 43,000 Christians have been killed. 18.5 thousand Christians have been abducted. And 17.5 thousand churches have been raised in Nigeria since 2009. 43,000 killed, 18.5 thousand abducted. You know what's happening in Afghanistan that we received an email just two days ago that they're trying to establish an underground railroad to help believers escape to safe havens. That people are, the Taliban are going into cities and they're immediately killing all men who are Christians. And then they're, you can imagine, with the women and children. This is a normal way of life. A friend told me a story of one of the men that he was discipling. This is in Germany, a Muslim background believer. Her son was killed in Germany five years ago on his way back from a college graduation. He was killed by white supremacists who thought he was Muslim and Arab, but he was also hated by his colleagues for turning to Christ. And now he's at rest with Jesus. See, all across the world, from China to Washington, D.C., Christians are persecuted, hated, and stepped on. In China, one of the primary ways that they persecute Christians is by de denying them paperwork to have children, even if the wife is five months pregnant. They change their decision, and they force an abortion. Persecution is subtle and perverse and insidious, 
and it's not what we necessarily always picture it like. But God considers it just to replay, repay with affliction those who afflict his people. And so when we hear these stories, immediately we begin to be stirred to compassion and if you have more of a Rambo personality, you begin to feel stirred to other things. But what is our role? Is it vindication? Is it retribution? Is it recompense? Is it retaliation? Is it revenge? No, the scriptures clearly teach all of these are to be exercised by God and by God alone. Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Who is classified as wicked in the scriptures and in this passage? The one who will, who will receive the wrath of God. So verse 6 says, is God's will or it's it's god considers it just to replay repay with affliction those who afflict you and then he says this inflicting this is how he he repays inflicting vengeance on those who do not know god and on those who do not obey the gospel of our lord jesus christ and so what we see in this passage are three groups of people who will receive the affliction or you could say the wrath of God. I know it's heavy, guys, but this is important. This is important because Christianity in the United States has been watered down to the point of barely being recognizable. Long gone are the days of Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now it's who wants a new car. Three types of people will be afflicted. The afflictor. This is obvious. We just said it. The persecutor, the oppressor, the one who most seemingly obviously deserves God's wrath, they will get it. But there's two groups that are a little bit less obvious. The second group is this, those who do not know God. Those who do not know God. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Greek word there, which is translated as those who do not know God, it normally is translated as see perceive, discern, ascertain, or discover. In other words, it doesn't mean know the way we think in English it means. It means something far more profound, those who do not discern Jesus, those who do not ascertain him, those who do not perceive him with their eyes. Now think about that, how fitting this is then that Jesus says to the Pharisees that you see but you're blind. They did not perceive with their eyes the identity of the Messiah. It's fitting then that Jesus said that you are always hearing but never what? perceiving. It is those who have perceived the Messiah who will be pardoned from the wrath of God. It's fitting then that Jesus said, I speak in parables so that they will hear but not be able to discern. See, those who see Jesus for who he is, not those who can fill out a questionnaire about him. Anyone who's ever gone to Sunday school can do that. It's those who perceive him to be the son of God who died, buried, was resurrected, and is coming again in power. It's those who have placed their faith in him. 
those are the ones who will not be afflicted with the wrath of God. And anyone who does not fall into the, that narrow path will have the wrath of God poured out upon them in all of its fullness and fury. Those who do not know God also include those who have never heard of him, which is why we go and why we share. Those who do not know God includes those who know about him but are not acquainted with him. The same way that I know about Obama or Trump, but I don't know them, but I know about them. And the third group of people, those who do not obey the gospel. Those who do not obey the gospel. What does that mean? To obey the gospel is to believe in and surrender to what Jesus said and did. Jesus said that to obey the gospel is to believe in the one that the Father has sent. It's to believe in Jesus. It's to acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, Christ and King, that he did what he said to do, pay the full price of the wrath of God for sin, and that he will do what he says he will do, which is come back to judge the quick and the dead. To not believe in this promised Messiah is to disobey the gospel. That's what this means. Those who refuse to believe, which may quite well be many or some in this room. Those who refuse to believe, Paul is saying clearly, emphatically, you can't dance around it. You can't reason away. You can't get out your exacto knife and change it. Paul is obviously saying, regardless of 21st century American Christianity's heresies, those who refuse to obey will be afflicted with wrath, period. Well, what type of affliction awaits them? Paul describes it. Inflicting vengeance, and also, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Vengeance literally means to give full punishment. So vengeance means to give full punishment for sin. That if Adam and Eve's choice of rebellion was enough to curse the world with sin and to riddle it with death and decay, to be removed from paradise, never to see the face of God again, one sin, how much more will the full punishment of God be? How much more full punishment will there be for those who embraced a lifetime of rebellion? That's what vengeance means. But he also says eternal destruction. Eternal meaning everlasting. Everlasting destruction. In other words, hell. Defined as the absence of God's presence. That's what he says here. Eternal, everlasting destruction, not annihilation, because it can't be everlasting annihilation. 
eternal destruction, everlasting destruction, which is being away from the presence of the Lord and being away from the glory of his might. See, this term does not mean extinction. It does not mean annihilation where you simply cease to exist, but it is the loss of everything good, everything worthwhile, everything pure and admirable in the world. This word, destruction, is used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 5 to describe the impact of terrible sin. In the context of 1 Corinthians 5, it's describing the sin of incest between a mother and a son. And it's describing the way that that sin destroys one's life. And here, Paul is using that same word again to describe an everlasting state of destruction that is self-imposed because of a refusal to believe the gospel. Having not desired to do the will of the king, God says, as C.S. Lewis writes, God says to them, your will be done. You don't want anything to do with me? Your will be done. The punishment for these three groups of people is not extinction where you just die and enter into nothingness. It is eternal separation from the love of God, which is tantamount to endless suffering. If that was the whole story, it would be terrible news. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is that since before there was time, Jesus, the lamb who was slain before there was time, God set him aside and set into motion the most brilliant unfolding of history through his providence that would culminate with the only begotten son of God humbling himself to be born on earth, to be born in a stable, and to die even death on a cross so that he could be the atoning wrath paying, sacrifice, satisfying the propitiating sacrifice of God so his blood could be poured out upon the seat of his mercy and the veil could be torn and he could fulfill the sacrificial system once and for all and sit down next to God the Father so that now those who are called far off could be brought near and enter in at any time. And that's the gospel. And to those who have come to believe in that gospel, the righteous judgment of God grants a final thing, and that's relief to the weary. Verse 7, and to grant relief to those who are afflicted. Paul knew what it meant to suffer for Jesus. He's telling the church the same things that he tells himself when he's in the darkness of his own despair. That hope, we need to hope and wait for the ultimate rest and the final reward that comes in the future. He knows that his soul will only be at rest when Jesus returns because only then would his enemies be removed, which is why he writes in 1 Corinthians, and the final enemy to be defeated is what? death at the resurrection and then all the enemies of God will have been destroyed 
and all that waits for God's people is a deep Sabbath rest, which the Sabbath in the Old Testament look forward to, and the seventh day of creation, the day of rest, which we look forward to. And God put road signs and, and, and snapshots and foreshadowing in all of history so that we would point and we would see something that is far more glorious that's for us on the horizon. Paul knew that his soul would only be at rest then because then the prophecies would be fulfilled that the lion would lie down with the lamb and the child would play with the asp and the viper and God himself would wipe away every tear from every eye. This is the rest and relief, my friends, that you actually crave and do not settle for a temporary shadow of it today because it will be short-lived. Eternity with our true husband and a perfect utopia, Emmanuel, God with us. And when will this take place? Continuing in this passage, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. When Jesus is revealed, well, what will be the manner of his coming when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, inflicting vengeance, verse 10, and when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe. Jesus wants to be famous. He wants to be glorified. He wants to be marveled at. He wants us to stand in awe of him. We don't need more therapeutic deism where we pop a little scripture pill to make us feel better about the day. We need to stand in marvelous awe before our king who is an all-consuming fire. And when will this happen? Well, that's what he talks about next chapter, so you have to wait. (laughs) And so Paul culminates with this prayer, looking forward towards our responsibility now. He says, to this end, we always pray for you that God may make you worthy of this calling, that he may fulfill every resolve for good work, faith, by his power. Why, Paul, why? so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, not by your power or your might, but according to the grace, the gift of our Lord God and our Lord Jesus. Paul prays they would grow in Christ-likeness, that's being made worthy, and that God would bless their kingdom laboring their desire to do good. And he prays these things knowing that they will result in God's grace clearly being seen, and God's glory being manifested. And the big idea is this. It's not until Jesus is finally revealed that we will receive the relief and the recompense that we desire. And until that day, we grow in our faith and we do not grow weary in doing good so that the grace and glory of Jesus would be clear to all. 
I remember being terrified of death, to af afraid to suffer the judgment of God. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it is a fearful thing to, to fall into the hands of the living God. Hell should give you pause. You shouldn't sweep it under the rug because it makes you uncomfortable. Hell should stop you in your tracks. And it is not popular to talk about hell because people want you to talk about the love of God, and maybe that's how you feel right now. But let me be straight and honest with you as I finish. The love of God satisfies an eternity of punishment that you deserve. The love of God sent the Son of God to die in your place. The love of God pardons criminals and rapists and gossips and liars and it makes them sons and daughters. The love of God sends the wicked to hell so that the family of God will no longer be tainted or threatened by sin and death. The love of God demands the justice of God, the jealousy of God, and culminates in the wrath of God upon sin. God is not two-dimensional. He is a multifaceted being beyond our comprehension. Hell is real. Time is short. Sin is catastrophic. Judgment is coming. And we bend the knee to our king and ask for forgiveness. Let us weep in wonder let us marvel at his magnificence. That he would call us children of God. After all we've done, said, and thought, this is the plan of salvation as seen in the gospel. And I implore you, if you have not surrendered to its beauty, do so today. do so today. We're going to listen to some testimonies now of how God has transformed lives because today we're celebrating baptism at the beach. And so who wants to go first? As long as you don't cry, it'll be fine. <laughs> All right, one of the trouts, David's going to, he's going to, Get it ready here. I told Josh and Max I would stand with them. So, uh, so this is um, wow. First of all, Bill, that was that was great message. Thank you, and I f perfect message. It's it's cool in the very beginning how God, how Bill said that um, you know we preach uh, through the word, and it was just. You know, perfect timing that today is baptism. You know, this that message lined up for today because we celebrate um, kind of the other half of that message of the the freedom and the life that we have in Christ. And uh, you know, as Bill said, that you know the the vengeance uh, points to the uh, the wrath that was poured out on the Egyptians. Well, the Egyptians were buried in that water and killed. But we, as believers, when we celebrate baptism, we go down and die in the water 
but we are reborn. reborn. Amen? And that's what we're going to celebrate today. So uh, I'm going to have Josh go first. Speaking to the mic. Really? Yes. <laughs> Is that low enough for you? Yeah, yeah. I'm not that short. <laughs> hey, hey, guys. Um, my name's Josh, and uh, for those of you who don't know me, I was in an accident when I was 11, which almost killed me. Um, and the uh, only reason I'm alive today is because of the, <coughs> the grace of Jesus Christ and Father God. How did I repay him? Growing up, I became selfish, angry, prideful, bitter as a person, burdened with regret, shame, and guilt. Through high school, and especially college, I turned to uh, drugs and alcohol to try and fix my problems that I know now know only Jesus can heal. Um, contrary to that, all my life I considered myself a Christian because I knew of Jesus but didn't have a personal relation with him even though my lifestyle did not match up with uh, what it was supposed to be. Um, that changed after I graduated college in uh, May 2019. Um, it began with two events that summer which uh, definitely changed the course of my life forever. Um, uh, it was midsummer, um, late at night. My buddy Drew hit me up and uh, asked if I wanted to hang out. So we're sitting on our, our front porch. And uh, that was right around the time when Drew was gonna go to YWAM. It's a missionary uh, like education pro um, program in Hawaii and he was gonna go and do that. So. We spoke about the gospel pretty frequently around that time, and um, he asked if I was saved, and I was like, yeah, of course I am, um, and he's like, really, dude, and through that conversation, like, when he left, I'm just like, oh, I probably, I'm probably not, so, and then that kind of set the spark in me, and uh, the second part was when Miss Markle invited me my brother and my friends from high school to a Bible study at her house. I learned more about the, uh, the Bible at that study and at the, uh, the ones I've been to, um, like the, uh, the DG here, than I have about the Bible in my entire life. And I thank God for my friends and the people that he put in my life because without them, I don't think that I would have even like, considered this road for my life. Um, I now realize that the love God's, God has had for me all this time and that he's always been there for me no matter how many times I've turned my back on him or stumbled in sin. So now as an adult, I'd like to make a commitment and a personal choice to follow Christ. Uh, all right, uh, I'm Zach. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, I have a tendency to uh, pass out when I'm public speaking. <laughs> so, um, growing up, I knew who Jesus was, but I never really went to church. And looking back, I realized that growing up, I was selfish, angry, and prideful. I never really considered myself a Christian, and I thought that was fine. I didn't need God. I had me. Through school, that opinion started to change. I began to think, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I want to learn more. 
Then after coming home from college, I started spending time with my friends' families, and I realized they had that relationship with God that I didn't. I knew that was what I wanted, so when Miss Markle invited me and my brother uh, to a Bible study, I happily said yes, and was eager, eager to learn more. As I learned more about what God and Jesus did for us, it changed my opinion even more. I decided I wanted to start going to church, so I started coming to Revolve uh, with my friends, and it quickly became my favorite part of the week. Uh, then came the offer to join a disciple group led by Dave, which I was happy to join, and I've learned and grown so much over the past few years as a follower of Christ, and now I'm here, I have a relationship with God and his people, and I'm so thankful for everything he's done for me. So today, I want to say thank you to God and for all the love that he has always had for me. Today, I'm making a commitment to God and the promise to keep growing as a Christian. Thank you. See? That was awesome. My name is Bentley, and baptized to me means that you accept Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior for all it.